We all know lasting success takes persistence and effort. However, so much of our culture pushes us towards doing what's easy, what's guaranteed and what looks glamorous in the moment. It's long-term thinking that will help in those darkest moments of doubt to keep prioritizing what matters most, doing small things over time to achieve our goals and being willing to keep at them, even when they seem pointless, boring, or hard. Hey, it's Dustin Burleson. Welcome to the Burleson Box, where my guest today is Dory Clark. Dory is a consultant and keynote speaker who teaches executive education at Duke University and Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and the number one communications coach in the world by Marshall Goldsmith leading Global Coaches Awards. Clark is a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and has been recognized as a branding expert by the Associated Press, Fortune, and Inc. Magazine. The New York Times described her as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She's the author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You and Stand Out. Her books have been translated into 11 languages, and today we discuss her latest book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. I'm excited to dig into today's episode on The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. All right, welcome everyone. I'm so excited to have Dory Clark on the program. We're going to talk about her latest book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory, welcome to the program. Dustin, thank you. So glad to be here. I'm so fascinated by your backstory. You've done a lot. Uh, I was reading through the book. You've even done stand-up comedy for a while. I just discovered you were a press secretary for a campaign. Uh, You teach, you coach. Kind of give the listeners your backstory. Sure. <laughs> it 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 has been eclectic. Um you didn't even mention I was an executive director of a bicycling advocacy organization. <laughs> cool. Oh, we're going to be great friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I, yes, I can I can tell already. But broadly speaking, I I started my career as a as a journalist and uh it, you know, ended up getting laid off. So I had been covering politics. I tried to get another job as a journalist, but uh, the market was very tight. So I switched over into working on political campaigns and uh, worked on some really cool high-profile races, you know, governor's race, presidential campaign. Uh, but unfortunately, my candidates did not win. So I shifted into the nonprofit space. And then uh, it's now it's now been about 16 years, but I, I started my own 
consulting company. So I consult and speak and do executive coaching and now business school teaching, all focused around communications and uh, mar- marketing strategies, sort of the, the intersection of how we can be better strategic thinkers in our life and how to communicate that effectively to the, uh, the, the constituencies that matter, whether that's employees or customers or prospects. Yeah, I love the, and I just wanted to bring listeners up to speed because I love that you teach both at Duke and Columbia University, but also work with entrepreneurs and you work with large groups and you work, work with business owners. So you really are in both camps, right? Yeah, absolutely. You gotta you gotta roll up your sleeves. I mean, literally yesterday, I uh, I was doing a program for Columbia University for their executive education program for a large global law firm. Uh, but you know, every every uh, large global law firm is made up of small regional uh, law firm offices, and we were talking about the future of work and how they could adjust to the post-pandemic reality of um, the associates they're working with, maybe having some different priorities and, uh, and different views about, uh, about life in the office. And I, I know from my friends and colleagues who are uh, doctors, who are dentists, who are orthodontists, uh, that they're facing a lot of similar issues with regard to staffing and, uh, and dealing with staffing issues in this kind of you know, great resignation post-pandemic world. So I think they're pretty salient issues. And you, you've lived this, right? I, I want to say in the book, if I'm remembering correctly, you got the green light for this from your publisher, like just days before the COVID pandemic. Yeah, the manuscript got, uh, or the 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 pitch, you know, the um the the sort of book proposal got approved. March, uh, sorry, February 28th of, <laughs> of 2020. And then literally the next morning, uh, I woke up in, in New York, where I was living at the time, had its first COVID case. And of course, within basically a week, uh, the entire world freaked out and everything, everything kind of <laughs> went immediately downhill. Uh, but yeah, it was it was sort of the, the world's most rapid pivot that uh, I started writing a book about long-term thinking right at the moment where we probably all had to be short-term thinkers more than we ever had before. That's what I took away. I, th- I think you had a friend that was like, hey, is this really the best time to be writing a long-term thinking book? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I just, I had to have faith. I'm like, you know what? It'll come back. I, I know it'll come back. Yeah. yeah. We were all like, how do we get through the day? I remember doing daily updates for our listeners and members on just interpreting, you know, what are the different laws that are going to be passed on masks and when can we reopen to see certain types of patients? Uh, but you were right. I mean, in retrospect, looking at everything, right? We always joke and say in the long run, it's always the long run that matters. Uh, you absolutely helped, I think, a lot of people if, if you go through this book. And if you're a member in the in the paid subscription, you're going to receive a physical copy of Dory's book. Mine is all marked up and down the margins, which a friend of mine shudders. He's like, you can't write inside of a cloth-bound book. And so I break all the rules, but you, I've got notes in the margins. I've got <laughs> notes everywhere. There's white space. Um Walk us through, like, I mean, I guess maybe we'll take a step back and go, why are we all so busy? Why are we, why, why are we kind of incentivized and focused on the short term? Yeah, there, there's so many reasons and so many factors that uh, tie together that 
it makes it challenging for most of us to unravel. But what I came to realize is if we actually do want to do long-term thinking, and almost, almost all of us are behind this conceptually, right? It's not like there's a sort of anti-long-term thinking lobby out there. Most people are like, yes, that sounds great, but I don't have time. I can't do it. And I realized that the first obstacle is if we're ever going to get to the place where we're really realistically able to do long-term thinking, we need to somehow get past it. We need to somehow um, find a way around this insane, crazy busyness that we've, so many of us, fallen prey to. So what I came to realize is there's a few things going on. I mean, the first is sort of the obvious uh, one, you know, the tip of the iceberg. And it's true, of course. I mean, people aren't making this up, but, you know, yes, we have too many meetings. Yes, we have too many emails. That is that is accurate. But it's not the full scope of the problem. Um, there was some fascinating research out of Columbia University um, by Sylvia Baletza and her colleagues talking about the fact that, especially in American society, busyness really has become a contemporary status marker. And so, you know, for a lot of people, being busy becomes really bound up with our own self-identity. And even if we claim that we want to be less busy or we sort of, you know, try to stop, we keep making choices that pull ourselves back into it because it's how we think of ourselves as being successful, being in demand, being a, a person who has value in the world. And it's it's actually really hard to extricate ourselves from it because without even recognizing it, uh, it's become a part of, of how we conceive of ourselves. We wear it as a badge of honor, and particularly in America, right? I feel like, I think I read recently almost half of paid sick leave and paid vacation time goes unused. Do you do you see a difference in your I'm curious what you found with your clients outside of the US? Yeah, yeah, the US? Ab absolutely. I mean, it it even manifests on um, you know, just just the, the the most obvious levels. In America, this sort of classic um, question when you're meeting someone, you know, which of course is not, it's, it's so banal. I, I advise people not to use it because it's like, <laughs> oh my God, you know, but, uh, but the classic one is, oh, hey, Dustin, nice to meet you. What do you do? What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a work question. It's like, okay, the first, the first go-to that we're doing when we're grounding someone, when we're understanding who they are is, is what is your job? Whereas the question that people ask in other European countries or in other countries around the world, it's actually really different. And it's, it's not to say that they're better necessarily because, because they, you know, they have their own sort of weird overtones as well. But the question might be, well, where are you from? And, you know, that can mean things like, well, what village, what, what ancestry, uh, you know, something, something along those lines. And, you know, that can be problematic for, for different reasons. I mean, a great thing about America is it's sort of egalitarian, you know, I don't care where you're from. I don't care that you grew up on food stamps or, you know, whatever, like now you're a self-made man. That's, that's an awesome thing. But it is interesting because it, it shows the difference um, that work is the lens that we're looking through rather than, you know, this other places where it might be like, well, who are your people? Yeah, it's, I think I've seen it's just my personal experience. I don't have any research to back it up. So it's anecdotal. But I feel like in America, we see someone who's running from meeting to meeting, never has any free time, busy, works late, responds to emails at 2am, but is still at the 6am conference call, then on a jet, you know, we see that and we go, wow, they must be really important. 
And then in my European clients, we've about almost 30% of our members are outside the US, particularly in Italy. They see someone like that and go, oh, like they're more impressed by someone who has excessive vacation time though. That person must be really important. As an example in the book with David Crenshaw, books all of July and all of December completely off for family. Like my European clients go, okay, he's got it, right? That's <laughs> he's, right. He's got the life I want. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in, in so many things, right, we take our contemporary reality and just sort of, um, backdate it and assume that that's always the way that it's been. But anybody who's watched Downton Abbey recognizes that, you know, even just a hundred years ago in England, um, the, the, you know, the, the, mo the most, uh, socially elite people really didn't even have jobs. They thought yeah. it was so weird if you had a job. It was like, oh, how day class A, you have to work for money. <laughs> I remember uh, Maggie Smith's line, what, what is a weekend? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Love, love Downton Abbey. Um, it, to provide some practical advice, which the book is just chock full of, uh, you say the first step is to really set the terms for a meaningful life. And I want to highlight for clients that you know, in our meetings or when I sit down with a new member, often I'm told, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and fix what's going on in the business, I just want to get everyone on the same page, right, with their employees or with their investors or their business partners. And I just kind of smile and go, okay, well, define that page. You know, what is that? And you start right there in the book and say, you know, we have to we have to start there. I mean, like to use the example again of, of, uh, of Crenshaw, you know, he's going to set his work priorities around the fact that all of July and all of December, he's going to be inaccessible and with his family and on vacation. Can we, can we kind of dig into that on, you know, where do we start when people say, I, I realize I'm too busy. I'm running from meeting to meeting. I do want to think long-term how, you know, how do I start? Where do I begin? Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. So there's multiple approaches. There's multiple ways in. You've identified one of them in, in talking about Dave Crenshaw, who's a colleague that I profile in the book, which is you actually can start by creating rules for yourself. Now, obviously, uh, if, if you're working 80-hour weeks, suddenly declaring, I'm going to take two months off <laughs> is probably the, not the most practical thing because, you know, you're, you're going to you're, as soon as it actually comes up, you're like, well, I can't do that. I have to da -da 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 -da, and, and it'll blow up. But I think um, it's, it's almost like retraining yourself when you're jet lagged, right? Uh, you know, if, if you've been operating six or 10 hours uh, in the future, you're going to be miserable and it, you know, you're going to have a terrible day. You're going to make, you know, make it not, uh, not work very well. If, if all of a sudden you sort of snap yourself back, but if, if you're trying to, um, uh, to retrain yourself, you, you want to make sure, all right, you know, I, I, I need to function. Uh, so I need to get some sleep, but you know, let me incrementally sort of roll the clock back or roll the clock forward so that I can adjust. And similarly, it might be just, you know, essentially putting guardrails up for yourself, making a policy. You know, if you're working till nine o'clock every night, you know, maybe it's all right, well, starting next week, you know what, I'm going to make a rule for myself that I'm going to leave work by 830, no matter what. And, you know, that's something that's, that's attainable enough that you, you, you force yourself to start to get smarter because you have to make better choices. If you know that that is a fact and you're not going to bend, you're not going to violate it, then 
it, it enables you to sort of clear out some of the brush that you may have been distracted by, and it forces you into greater levels of efficiency. And that can be done with the time that you stop work in the evening. It can be done with regard to your weekend schedule. It can be done, as Dave does, with regard to taking a month or even two off per year. That's often a starting point. The other piece, Dustin, that I'll just mention is a problem that we get into and and you know unfortunately this is this is the problem of successful people right like a lot of a lot of the time management and productivity advice is aimed at you know I'll call it like the 101 level you know they'll be like well just stop watching so much tv it's like <laughs> oh come on you know if if you're a highly successful professional you you're making you're making good money you're you're at the top of your game the problem is not that you're sitting there eating chips and binging game of thrones it's that you're doing you're doing exactly what you optimized yourself for, which is at the beginning of your career, the way that you got successful was you accepted all the clients, you said yes to all the things. And when you found an opportunity to, you know, to make money or to do the thing, you said yes. And that was a great thing to do early on. But what nobody tells you is that those excellent behaviors become liabilities when you reach a certain level of success because you literally run out of time. And so you need to train yourself to start saying no to good things, even to good things. And that can be very painful and a big adjustment for successful people, but it's necessary for you to maintain your sanity and it's necessary for you to actually have space for great things. It's so smart. I hope everyone goes back and re-listens to that segment. Uh, I've lived it. I I want to. I'm curious because anytime I meet best-selling authors who are flying all over the world, I kind of feel like maybe you've lived this as well. But when I was young in my career, I did exactly that. I said yes to everything, and I burned the candle at both ends. Up early, working late, and I've learned to shift priorities uh, later in my career. Can, can we talk about maybe? either through your personal experience, I'm guessing as a multiple best-selling author and someone who does keynote presentations all over the world and teaches at multiple universities, I'm guessing you've lived some of this, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, uh, I, guess, I guess unfortunately, although it is a good problem to have, right? You know, we always have the, the mantra that you're never without problems. It's just that some problems are better than others. And, you know, we all, of course, have to recognize that a problem of too much work, you know, or too many inquiries. That's great. You know, that's the problem you would have killed for when you were starting your business. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not real. And so you continually have to uh, adjust things. I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, every every decade or so, you just have to sort of reset your baseline about how much you can eat without without gaining a lot of weight. You just have to get a little bit more uh, rigorous in terms of uh, think, thinking through how your metabolism is working. Uh, similarly, uh, as as you progress in your career, you know, let's call it every five year, years. I mean, if you're if you're accelerating fast, maybe it's even every couple of years. You you just have to you know tighten things a little bit. You know, a couple of ticks of the dial where. People who are reaching out to you and asking for your time, um, you need to get a little more selective, or you may need 
uh, you know, not in some brutal Jack Welch way, but you know, you may need to drop a certain percentage of your clients if they uh, if they've been working with you and and have sort of been grandfathered in at really ridiculously low prices. You may need to either renegotiate that or um, you know kindly refer them elsewhere because you can't allow your time to be bogged down with things that no longer make sense for your current reality. It's it, in our life. We we said yes to everything, every opportunity to to teach, to get on a plane and present what we were doing, to to add and bolt different things onto the business. I remember one day we looked back at the data on treating adult orthodontic patients in our practices, and it just it wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't profitable. They were hard cases to finish. They really needed multiple specialists to get things done the way we wanted. So we pivoted and just said, we're you know we love working with kids. And they're young and healthy and everyone seems to be happy. And we, by the way, we make more margin on those cases. And I mean, we started telling members and clients that we weren't treating adults anymore, which is 25% of the average orthodontic specialist practice. And they looked at us like, you know, we <laughs> had a third head. They're like, what do you mean you don't treat adults? But it, was, it wasn't serving us. And we never stepped back to really figure out why we started doing it in the first place. And it was just because someone asked and we said yes. Uh, yes. You give some great examples in the book on how to filter and some and some great uh, colleagues and friends and and peers in your space. Do you have some favorites that have helped you say no to opportunities you may have said yes to when you were younger? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can I can get into that and, and just to build for a moment, Dustin, on what you were just saying. Uh, I I love that you did that and that you made that that ultimately strategic choice because. What we all need to be asking ourselves is, you know, am I enjoying this work? Uh, is the is the reward for it, whether it's a financial reward or you know emotional or however you're measuring it, but is it commensurate with the labor you're putting in? I have a client that I worked with last year, and you know, like 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 a lot of people, she continued saying yes um to to different gigs for you know for a lot of different reasons and you know some some of them were were lower priced than what she wanted her baseline fee to be and but you know because she was a little nervous about things during the pandemic she would say yes more often or if they'd been a long standing client she you know felt bad so she would continue to say yes but i had her do an analysis and i mean i think i think this is um useful for for everybody um it's not necessarily hard to pull the data together, although we don't always look at, at it super systematically. But she realized that um, that so twenty five percent of engagements that she accepted were were currently less than what her technically her standard fee was now. So for twenty five percent, she was accepting less than she uh, wanted to or should have been. And what she also realized was that those engagements took up 40% of her time. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I said to her, I'm like, I know it feels a little intimidating for you to get rid of 20, you know, if you, if you say, no, I will not go below this floor. I know it might feel intimidating to get rid of 25% of your income. But if I said to you, would you be willing to trade 25% of your income for 40% more time? Would you take that trade? And she's like, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it suddenly became very clear what she needed to do. So I think sometimes just, you know, really looking at the numbers and being honest with ourselves uh, can be quite powerful. But yeah, I, I think that a lot of it really is taking the time to, to set parameters for ourselves and, um, you know, we we often can make different excuses, but 
you know, oh, but, you know, this will be good exposure. This will be, you know, great audience or, you know, whatever it is. But sometimes actually the secret is helping to outsource the decisions or, or forcing ourselves to check in with other people. I mean, frankly, I can be a little bit of a softy sometimes about like, oh, but, you know, they really want to have me or, oh, this could work because of X, Y, Z. And so having a hard set of codified rules is is important. Um, for, for that client that I was telling you about, I actually had her make a make a pact that she would not accept that she would not accept any engagement that deviated from you know her her sort of standard fee that there were no exceptions allowed unless she ran it past her finance people and they approved it <laughs> and and they were never going to approve it you know <laughs> so so you know it was, it was i mean I, I guess if it's like oh will you give a free talk for the white house or something i mean yes we make yeah. exceptions but <laughs> it's very rare that something rises to that level and it, it just it became a sanity check for her um so that she didn't get sort of emotionally triggered and say yes to things that she shouldn't have now a quick word from our sponsor Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now back to the program. Yeah, I don't know where I learned it, but you've got some great examples on the book on basically, um, unless you're super excited about it. Someone told me like, if you wouldn't say yes and clear your schedule for it tomorrow, then don't say yes to it six months down the road, right? Yes. I had uh, the the university where I teach came to me and said, hey, you know, you've got a foot in the orthodontic world, you've got a foot in the business world. Would you develop a curriculum for management of the, of the dental and orthodontic practice? And and I years ago would have said, oh, absolutely, honored to be a part of it. And I said, let me think about it. And I went and I just dug through kind of like what I thought would be a semester-long curriculum, then how many hours it would take me to create all those lectures. And I'm sure you're like, me, I don't want to put it on a screen in front of a resident unless I've got, you know, eight different references and it's good research. And then someone told me, said, okay, if you think that's going to be 16 hours of time or 30 hours of time, double it. Like, do you have 60 hours of time? Because as you know, with Parkinson's law, things creep. And I, and I did that. I went back the, maybe the next week and said, you know, I just, there's just no way I have the time available to do it to the level that it deserves. I do think one of these years I'll figure out the time to do it, but it's so funny because years ago I would have said yes. So uh, I love that. Let's, let's run it by the financial team and you know, that they're going to say no way, man, you're going to lose money on this uh, hand over fist. So I love that example. That's great. Yeah. And, and I, I think you've cited a great example too, Dustin. I mean, one of the 
sort of rules of thumb that I talk about in the long game is uh, there's a gentleman named Derek Sivers. He's a, a writer and speaker. Yes. He was the founder of CD Baby. And uh, his sort of, cl- you know, classic uh, line that he uses is, if it's not a hell yes, it's it needs to be a no. And I think what's so useful about that framework is it's not typically that, you know, for so many of us, we get caught up in accepting bad options, right? I mean, most of us are smart enough to say no to something that's a bad offer. But the problem is there's a lot of middling offers or a lot of things that it's like, well, you know, it's not perfect, but it's got some attributes. Maybe I could make this work. And we often spend so much time pursuing those kind of average things and trying to make them good um, that it that it literally does crowd out the time that we could use for strategic thinking or for actually being able to jump on and exploit great opportunities when they do present themselves. I, I feel like I see that with our members uh, and maybe some of the listeners can, um, you know, can think about in their own lives. And I'm curious what you found with your clients and that they often get stuck trying to figure out like, it's not like, it's not a hell yes, but it's not a no. And how do I really pick if this is the right thing, if this is the right goal? Do you see that? And can you speak to that? For sure. For sure. I mean, I think this is, this is one of the places where we can analyze it a couple of ways. Frankly, for a lot of us, we've really gotten divorced from our intuition. Um, I, uh, I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of a book, um, called the, the gift of fear, uh, by Gavin De Becker, which talks about how we can get smarter about using our physiological reactions to, un- to, to actually unpack them and listen to them and understand that sometimes our, our bodies know things even uh, before our conscious minds do, because our conscious minds are great at sort of making excuses or, oh, I'm sure he didn't mean it that way, or no, I, 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 it'll be fine, really. But the truth is, um, science has shown that uh, with our microbiome, we actually have all of the brain chemicals, you know, the, the serotonin, the dopamine, the cortisol, we have it in our stomachs. So when we have gut reactions, we need to be listening to that. And we often override it to our detriment. So being aware of what our reaction is. I mean, if you, if you are presented with an offer and your heart is leaping and saying, oh my God, this is great. I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily mean do it. Of course, you want to be smart and vet it, but it's very positive. Whereas if there's a part of you that's saying, oh, well, you know, this seems like a good idea. I guess I really should do it. But your body is sort of rebelling against it. That is really worth looking at. Um, I, I think that the, the, the broader r- rule that we need to be adhering to here is that early in your career, the bias should be towards saying yes. Whereas later in your career, as you get more successful, the bias should be towards saying no, unless something proves itself to be an excellent opportunity. And um, just you know, being thoughtful about it in that way can be very powerful. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I, I think chapter four, the, the whole book's great, but chapter four, you could just cut that section out and sell it for 10 times the, co- the cost of the book. Because once you've decided on a goal, you literally give, I think, one, two, three, four, six different steps that I love on how to actually go make that goal happen. So we've talked about kind of zooming out, thinking strategically, trying to reclaim some time. And now it's time to go make it happen. And I want to highlight 
a friend of yours and a colleague, Martin Lindstrom, who works with one of the royal families on thinking generationally, where most CEOs and a lot of people listening to this think every 90 days we've got to hit a goal this quarter, which I think is horribly destructive. <laughs> and I think smart people like Warren Buffett agree. If we could just give CEOs a little more time and a little more slack in the system, we might get a lot better results, not just for their companies, but for the environment and for their workers and for a whole list of things we could go into. Um, do you, you want to maybe highlight some of your favorites? I'm, I'm going through the list of like, you know, getting the right support, hiring a coach, giving yourself a deadline, keeping your learning, learning going. And when, even when you lose, I want to talk about this kind of fail fast, fail often myth, if you will, out of, out of the Silic Silicon Valley that kind of scares some people. Um, there's a lot there, I guess, maybe what are your thoughts on and maybe referencing, uh, clients or, or research, once we've decided we want to do something, you know, how do you go make that happen? What are some things, I guess, that you would share with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, of, of course, um, you know, part of the battle is deciding what needs to be done, but, but then we get into execution. And as, as we all know, there are a lot of places along the way where we can get waylaid. You know, some of it is being unsure, okay, I know I want to do X, but okay, there's a million ways I could do X. You know, there's a million things that I, that I could, you know, ways I could be approaching it. And all of them in theory could work. So the question is, well, where should you start or what should you even be doing? And then, of course, there's a question of maintaining momentum. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of uh, rocky shoals that we need to be avoiding. So a part of it, you know, I, I, I certainly am a big fan of making sure that we don't get uh, triggered by paralysis um, when it comes to pursuing a goal, you know, sometimes people will ask in, in, you know, these very hushed tones, you know, but, you know, but what if, what if I pick the wrong goal yes. or, you know, what, or what if I, what if I'm starting on my goal, but I, but I do it the wrong way. And, you know, what I, what I like to say is kind of, so what, yep. <laughs> like, it's really okay. I think that, that a lot of times, we talk ourselves out of things or we, or we talk ourselves out of doing anything because we assume that it's such a momentous decision. Um, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, the, of course, the, the former, the founder and former CEO of, of Amazon, who I talk about quite a bit in the book because he truly is in the business world, a rather singular strategic thinker, um, has a framework for this, which I think is really powerful where he talks about one-way doors and two-way doors. And, you know, the, 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 the thing is, in business life, almost every decision is a two-way door. If you try something and it doesn't work, or you try something and you don't like it, you can leave. You can, you can, you know, you can go out the other side, or you can, you know, you can swing back and, and go back to where you were and try something different. You're not locked in. There's very, very few decisions in life, aside from, you know, having children that really are one-way doors and are irreversible. I mean, you know, I mean, even, even getting married, you don't want to get divorced, but you know, you can, and yep. similarly for business, you, you, you know, launch a, you know, a product, you launch a service. If it's not selling well, or you decide you don't like it, you know, Hey, I don't want to do adult orthodonture anymore. You don't have to. And we sometimes assume it would be this, you know, horrible thing, this, you know, you know, oh, it would look bad or, oh, it would be so traumatic. But the truth is, um, 
It's not. The secret is actually just making sure that as best we can, when we are starting something new, we start it in a small enough way so that we are testing it. And if we have to unwind it, it's not a big deal. You know, my favorite words in business are, you know, let's let's do a test. Let's try a pilot because that inherently is framing it up that, you know what, we'll try it for 30 days. If if it's not working or there, there's something wrong with it or it's just not fun, we don't have to keep doing it. That's the point of a pilot. And I think that we just need to hold a lot of things much more lightly than we do. I love that example from Bezos. And from the people we work with, we, the very first marketing firm we hired to do SEO and test Google ads, they were the first honest firm. I, I said, you're getting great results with, they were doing podiatrists and ophthalmologists. I said, do you think it'll work in dentistry and with dermatology and orthodontics? And they said, I don't know. We'll have to test it. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> you're the first honest person. Everyone else is like, ah, it'll work. Just give us your credit card. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Let's let's kind of uh, go a little deeper on Bezos because you say in the book, quote, if you're learning, you're not actually failing, end quote. And I think I might have the numbers wrong, but I know it was a significant amount. Amazon, remember the Fire phone, right? They yeah. had this phone that you could just point at anything and basically find it on the store and buy it. And I thought, oh, what a cool idea. Well, it turns out nobody wanted it. But I think they burnt like $100 million dollars developing that. And then they were selling them for 99 cents on the Amazon store just to get rid of the inventory. And somewhere in an interview, Bezos said, actually, everything we learned during that process set us up for Alexa, which is a huge success. So, you know, Bezos is such a strategic thinker, probably one of the smartest business people on the planet because he was so long term, I think all the way back from 97. He's like, this is, here's what we're doing. And we're going to burn a ton of cash to get there, but we're not going to stop with the end goal and they, and they achieved it. Um, you want to maybe talk about that? Cause I think there's this myth that failing fast and failing off. And I remember talking to Ozan Verol, his book, think like a rocket scientist on the program. He said, yeah, when you're building a rocket, you do have to test as you fly and fly as you test, but you need to be learning. Otherwise you're just wasting everyone's time and money. And in his example, blowing things up that could kill people. Um, you know, what have you taken away from that and how you help your clients kind of think differently about, one of the things Silicon Valley has convinced a lot of people that outright failure is great. And you're saying, well, if you're learning, you're not actually failing. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's there's two realities here, right? I mean, we might accept the premise, you know, intellectually. Okay, Silicon, you know, yay, Silicon Valley is right. Okay, fail fast, fail often, it's good. But the the truth on the ground is that for most human beings, most people really, you know, we might we might support the ethos of uh, of failure, but we don't want to be the ones that fail. <laughs> it's it's just not fun. It's just not satisfying. I mean, it is. I, I think almost everybody would agree that it is a lot nicer of a feeling to be on the project that, that succeeds wildly rather than the one that goes down in flames. And it's like, well, fail fast, fail often. You know, you, you don't want to be that person, and so quite rationally, you know, whether you're inside Silicon Valley or outside where, you know, I think in general, failure is not looked at quite so bullishly, people often hesitate to make moves because they don't want to fail. And I don't think that's irrational. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the key thing, though, is is also recognizing 
if we're setting ourselves up so that we need a situation where you're guaranteed not to fail, then almost definitionally what that means is you can never do anything new because if something is new, you don't know how it will go. So you're just stuck repeating things over and over again. And, you know, some people may be happy with that, but it's certainly not the way to, to grow a business or, or to, you know, become an innovator in any way. Um, so the interesting question is, might there be a way that you, that you could experiment, that you could innovate, that you could try new things, but not necessarily have some big catastrophic failure? And this is where I want to go back to the, to the point about testing, because I don't think, you know, anybody, I mean, in a literal sense, I guess, you know, a test failed if it, if it didn't uh, go the way you want, but nobody is going to call you a failure if you say, you know what, I'm doing an experiment. I want to see if X, Y, Z, let's run a test. And if you run that test, you you are you are gathering data, right? I mean, it it may it may work out one way, it may work out another way, but nobody is going to say, "Oh wow, you screwed up so badly." You know how shameful that, <laughs> that this didn't work. You know because it it might actually be shameful if you said, "Oh, this is our new direction. We're going all in on this. This you know this is the future of the company," and then it doesn't work, right? I mean, you've you've been a, a cheerleader, but but not necessarily. Uh, a scientist. But if we can become scientists instead, where, you know, we test things before we go all in, then it, it prevents us from going out over our skis and enables us to be data gatherers rather than someone who is suffering from a failure. Do you think that's why some businesses plateau? They're not testing? I'm thinking, you know, there's a, the history books are filled with, you know, Sears Roebuck and Blackberry and firms that just got you know, unseated by a new disruptor. Do you think that's a part of it? The the not being willing to test because they're fearful of failure? Is that, I mean, it's just a hunch? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's certainly a, a, a big part of it is um, you get locked into revenue streams and the way that things are done. And you, you don't really want to disrupt a status quo in which you are the leader. Yeah. So there, you know, there's a lot, of course, that's been written about this, you know, the need to sort of create an independent skunk works type scenario. This is something that Clayton Christensen wrote about a lot, that the corporate structure itself um, is likely to crush any innovation because that that in innovation threatens to unseat the um, the power structure that has gotten people to where they are. So I think that that, that is a big part of it. It is also true, though. That if you if you have become you know sort of entrenched, um, you might feel you know you might you might have sort of lost um, lost touch with the ethos of scrappy innovation and you know sort of running fast, quick, quick, cheap tests. Uh, sometimes, if if you are very successful, um, money can become a little bit of a curse because instead of running the test you have too much self-confidence. You say, oh, well, you know, we know what we're doing. Our people know what we're doing. And so if you have a lot of money, you might be inclined to just, you know, leap right in. Oh, well, we're going to, we're going to invest in the advertising right now. We don't need to test it or, oh, well, we're going to make sure that we pay for the, the fanciest uh, box possible because our customers want a really fancy box. And 
Maybe they do, but if they don't want what's in the box, then it's uh, to little avail. Yeah, customers don't always, don't always like when we tell them what they what they should have. Uh, I think back to Bezos. I mean, his day one mantra and his. Oh, I mean, I think he shocked whoever was interviewing him years ago on CNBC, and he's like, "Oh, we're fully prepared for the day when someone disrupts Amazon, and it'll happen. Someone will unseat us." It's just such an in- interesting way to think. How do you kind of? you know, encourage that or foster that. If you're a listener and you're leading your company, you say, listen, I get it. We've kind of plateaued. We've been thinking too short term. We want to kind of embrace some of this testing and 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 not be so fe- fearful of it. Uh, how do you get, in your experience, mid-level managers, perhaps, or team leaders in the company to kind of come on board? Well, I think where we run into trouble, where it's difficult for people, is if they feel like they're being judged, or you know, if if it's like, oh, well, you know, you're you're not doing a good job. You need to do better. You're failing here, so you know, like kick it up a notch. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, nobody likes to feel like they're being scolded or evaluated negatively. But something that is a very useful exercise. And I think that as long as an organization or you know a firm or an office is doing this uh, in a concerted way so that it's not pointing fingers at someone or a department or a person or whatever, but instead just making it an institutional part of how we think, how we do business. Um, there's a famous story uh, about Andy Grove, who was the uh, the longtime leader of Intel. And the, you know, th- there was a, an anecdote where... Um, you know, he was talking and, you know, folks were struggling in the company and, uh, and somebody said, you know, this sort of revelatory thing, which is if, if we were fired tomorrow and they brought in new guys to replace us, what's the first thing that the new guys would do to turn it around? And so they say, oh, well, obviously they'd do blah, 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 blah. And so then they say, well, why don't we do that? (laughs) And so, you know, just sort of thinking like, okay, if somebody were going to, you know, replace you, outstrip you, uh, you know, take, take over what you're doing in the market, uh, you know, et cetera, um, how would they unseat you? And well, why don't, why don't we do that ourselves uh, is not a bad thought exercise. What a great, great, great example. Uh, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. I want to share some resource links. I do want to thank you for chapter 10. What do they say? If your ears were burning or something. So last week when I was going through my notes, if you saw a bright sunrise or sunset coming from the Midwest, I was just so thrilled to see chapter 10 because you included, particularly for me and my listeners, an important component of all this. And that is to learn how to celebrate when you actually do succeed at these, when you set an objective, when you put wheels in motion to achieve your goal. It's so easy for high achievers to go, okay, what's next? And we don't we don't stop and celebrate it. So um, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to thank you for chapter 10. It's so good. It's so wonderful to see high-level people thinking about not just, okay, we grew revenue or we increased our net promoter score or we, you know, achieved this key objective in the business. And now it's like, okay, we want to do more and we just don't stop and celebrate, which is really, really important, right? So true. Yeah. Thank you, Dustin. I, I agree. 
I um, I just love that. So I, we, I could talk to you for days. I know our time is limited. I'm going to include a link to Dory's TED Talk. has over a million views, probably way more by now. Last time I checked, it's called uh, The Real Reason You Feel So Busy and What to Do About It. It's a great TED Talk. We'll have links to the books and uh, research that we've mentioned on the show today. And I want to give Dory a chance to tell listeners how to find her and learn more about her. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to get a chance to speak with you and, and with your community. Um, I'll also just mention that if uh, folks are interested, I have a free resource, which is the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment, which is a series of questions to really help you become more of a long-term thinker and, and sharpen that muscle. And folks can download it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Awesome. We'll include that on the links. Dory, thank you for writing the book. It's just amazing. And thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list study guides for each of the books and authors we interview. And as a member, you'll receive early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive transcripts, handouts, and PowerPoint templates to help guide your next team meeting. Just give us a call at 816-226-7988, and we can discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your employees. Be sure to listen each month for new resources. And until next time, remember the words of Charlie Munger, who said, be a continuous learning machine. Charlie is a voracious reader, along with Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and many other hugely successful people. As the old saying goes, we are old too soon and wise too late. Go make it a great month. and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy to use, easy onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.